Welcome to Building Better, a podcast where we're going to cover everything you need to know about structurally insulated panels or SIPs construction. Thank you for joining us in our very first episode. Today, we're going to talk about SIPs basics. If you know a little or a lot about SIPs, or even if you don't know anything about it, don't worry, we're here to teach you all and make it simple for you. My name is Gabriel Grossman, and I'm your host. I have some experience with SIPs. Three years ago, I started a SIP manufacturing company. Since then, I've realized people love SIPs, but not everyone in the construction industry knows about them. So I decided to make this podcast to talk about something I'm really passionate about. If you're a contractor, a builder, an architect, a designer, a homeowner, or you just want to learn, you're in the right place. Thank you for joining us. Today, I'd like to welcome our very first guest. We have with us the Preflex SIP Technical Specialist. He is a SIP consultant for businesses all over the states and has been working with SIPs for over 30 years. He is the SIPs guru, the godfather of SIPs. Al Kopp himself. Hi, Al, how are you? Not too bad. Everything's fine on the East Coast. I hope everything's good out there on the West Coast. What well, always starts with the most basic questions. What is a SIP? All right. It very simply can be described as an alternative building method that hopefully um, will take shape as a uh, accepted mainstream building method that uses a laminated panel to replace the existing uh, conventional means of framing most houses or most structures, uh, typically using two by fours, two by sixes trusses and things of that nature to stick frame your average building, which is done on site. And the trend of late has been to take modern technologies and new techniques to move into the factory setting where a lot of that work can be done in an enclosed environment in a factory and then shipped to the job site and assembled on site um, for all the right reasons. Um, I heard the analogy of you wouldn't consider building your car in your driveway. You would uh, make all the parts, build it in a factory, and ship the car to your driveway where you might enjoy it day by day. And the same can be said for uh, construction that is done in a factory. And then when it is put together, it's put together because it's already designed to fit together. And that's what SIPs do. They take a laminated components and in the factory, where glue is applied to a foam core, that structural grade adhesive will then create an injury structural bond to the skins, which is typically oriented strand board. Some people might look at it and not know the difference between plywood and OSB, but the difference is oriented strand board has some very unique properties and also allow us, allow us to make skins or the skin of the panel as large as 8 by 24 feet. So now you have a panel that's very, very large and allows you to build panels that can be used in a myriad of different ways for the envelope of a structure. And typically, SIPs are used for the floors, walls, and roof, as you well know. So that's, in a nutshell, I would say what a SIP is, is a laminated panel that replaces stick framing and can be used uh, in the field, but is designed, fabricated, and made ready to use in a factory. You mentioned the comparison between plywood and OSB. And like we know in the SIP industry, 
OSB is the most commonly used sheathing component. And now that you brought it up, what do you, what is the strength comparison between OSB and plywood? Which one is considered? You know, when you try to put something side by side and say, compare it in strength, the engineer in me kind of cringes because strength can be calculated in a number of different ways. We could calculate tensile strength, compressive strength, uh, shear strength, uh, you know, modulus uh, strength, strength of withdrawal. So it's very hard to say as an overall comparison, OSB is X times stronger than plywood. You just can't do that. You have to look at it in various uh, scenarios to determine whether it's actually stronger or equal or even less than. Uh, but let's just say that as a structural grade sheathing, OSB and plywood are very, very close and in some areas, plywood takes a slight lead, and in other areas, OSB has a better lead. What OSB does and does very well is makes a very, very large skin with very well-known uh, physical characteristics that are well accepted across all spectrums of the building industry, such that it can be used for a floor sheeting or a wall sheeting or a roof sheeting. And in all cases, it meets the requirements of the code. So that's really kind of the big the big overview of how OSB and plywood compare. They're on par. And 30 years ago, I could not say that OSB um, was equal to plywood because the reality is it wasn't. It didn't have the technology advance, the advances, technology, the machinery, the equipment, and the know-how. We weren't even making eight by 24-foot sheets of OSB 30 years ago. We just couldn't do it. Um, and now we do it routinely as a standard. So those big, large skins make... Uh, it's very easy to then make big, large sips. So it, it compares very nicely. So my following question, I think that was very insightful. It is definitely a, a newer product, the OSB, and with new testing have proven to be a, a great construction material, especially for shear forces, as we know. How long, Al, because you mentioned that you've been in this industry 30 years, how long has the sips been around for so the first um, the first use of adhesives and lamination to create an assembly, a laminated assembly, actually occurred all the way back in the 1940s. And that work was being done uh, by the U.S. Forest Products Lab when they were trying to evaluate how to better use the country's, uh, one of their greatest natural resources, which was wood. And we had all this wood, and we were looking at better ways to use it um, other than just cutting it up into two by fours and two by sixes and, and things like that. So they said, why don't we take what at that point was only plywood and laminate it together with something like a core. And now we create a laminated assembly that actually has some really good physical characteristics. So if you look all the way back, uh, to the birth of SIPs, really it was in the mid to late forties. Then over time, uh, um, uh, SIPs started to be manufactured at scale, um, and this didn't happen until the 70s, really. And a big part of reason, I should say, why they started up in the 70s had to do with the timber framing industry. The timber framers, who were uh, kind of a fledgling group at that time, uh, with a lot of people around the country doing their own thing in terms of post and beam, or post and tenon, uh, Morris and Tenon framing, 
uh, realize that their frames, once they put them up, could be made much more uh, resistant to the forces by wrapping them with a SIF or a SIF-like product. And so some of the early timber frame pioneers of that industry dipped their toe into this new industry of laminating panels, and the SIP industry kind of took off in the early 70s. And that's when um, uh, people started realizing the benefits of using these laminated panels. And it wasn't even until the early 90s that the Structural Sling Panel Association was formed. It was actually 1990. Uh, at that point in time, I was actually laminating panels on the East Coast somewhere in Virginia. And that's when we all got together and said, you know what, these things are really going to come of age at some point in time. We all ought to be in the same room at the same time and talk about how to come up with some common methods and details and designs that work for the SIF industry. So that's a, that's a brief history of how SIFs kind of got into the mainstream building market. And why do you think that they have not been able to have a, a greater penetration in the market, a bigger adaptability? And we don't, why don't we see more people using SIFs? There's, there's probably a dozen reasons why that has happened. Um, I like to uh, only half-jokingly uh, blame the lack of penetration on the fact that we, as an industry back in the 80s and early 90s, used to describe SIFs um, as a do-it-yourself method. Uh, there were times where I even ran across marketing material that would describe SIFs as a ready to assemble a panel that could be put together by anybody. All you had to do was follow the directions and snap them together. And that was a real shoot yourself in the foot marketing methodology because what they realized was do it yourself was taken a bit too far. And all of a sudden we had people that were ill-equipped to be able to build their own house because they just didn't have enough knowledge about how to deal with carpentry and and plumb and level and square, and they certainly had nowhere near enough knowledge of building science. And it really is the building science that needs to be better understood when you start making structures with SIPs, which are now high-performing structures, and they react differently. They or they act differently in different climates. And without a good understanding of this, you can wind up with some uh, moisture issues where you obviously did not intend to have moisture issues. You can end up with problems that develop because of this lack of understanding of building science. So besides the fact that builders are just notoriously really um, resistant to change, I would say that in the early days, we had a lot of uh, black eyes on the industry that resulted in people going, well, I've heard about those panels, but I don't want to use them because I know such and such had a bad experience with them. And they may have had a bad experience with them, but... Uh, I think it's fair to say that because somebody had a bad experience, it's not necessarily appropriate to blame the SIPs on that bad experience. It's to blame the untrained installer who took a perfectly good product, installed it improperly, and the result was, quote-unquote, a black eye for the industry because all of a sudden they had other, um, because moisture formed where it shouldn't have because of poor sealing practices. And next thing you know, we had a, a roof panel that needed to be repaired or the panels didn't go up fast enough because you had an untrained installer who didn't know what he was doing. So the industry has, re has uh, responded to those issues and those problems 
by putting out a lot of additional training and opportunities for a better understanding of building science issues so that we don't have these ongoing problems. And for the most part, a lot of those problems have, um, I won't say completely disappeared, but they're seldom at the forefront where my phone rings and I have to go out and figure out why somebody's panels didn't go up the way they should have or uh, didn't perform the way they expected them to. So I think this kind of outlines the main reasons why we haven't gotten uh, as much input into the general uh, building arena as we would like to have. Um, right now, there's a lot of growth in the industry, and I think it's um, uh, a big part of that has to do with, one, the performance requirements of the new code and various states and how they address uh, building performance. Uh, the other area is because of the lack of trained labor. And uh, as the trades become harder and harder to fulfill on any given build, and people are looking far and wide to figure out where they're going to find people and how they're going to put these things up, they realize that uh, a small team of carpenters can put up as fast a stick frame structure with a whole bunch of carpenters, and it's easier to find a small group of carpenters than it is to find a whole bunch of them. So we literally are using fewer people to put up more building in the same time frame. And that means that SIPs address very um, directly the labor shortage, and especially the skilled labor shortage that we currently see in the building trades. Thanks for the insight. Uh, my following question was that you mentioned that it really does take some uh, trained crew to install. This is not fully, uh, you know, anyone can do it, do it yourself. So my question is, how long does it take to train a crew? What are the skill requirements? Are there any, because you mentioned this less skill than stick framing. So how really, how long does it take to really have a good, trained crew that can install and really see the benefits of having a SIP installed? And what are the time savings you get in result of doing an install with a trained crew? Okay, so um, the the training requirement is one that uh, I would say when I train somebody, the more they know about carpentry and building, the easier it is to train them because I'm not having to work on the simple the simplistic side of training, such as plumb level and square. And they already know the techniques of cutting and drilling and fastening and things of that nature. So that takes a big chunk out of the way. If I was to train somebody that, you know, walked off a job as a, a, a teacher or a fireman or a policeman and tried to get them into the building trades, it would take significantly longer. Um, but anybody who already has made a living swinging a hammer, as I like to say, uh, can typically be very efficiently installing panels even on the very first day. Um, that doesn't mean that you're going to know everything. I mean, I still don't know everything, and I've been at this for 30 years. I'm not saying it takes 30 years to become a competent installer. It takes, you know, a day or give or take to learn the basics of installing panels. Um, in one day, I can take people through the basics of building science and the importance of sealing the panels. And this is where a lot of cases, a old school carpenter who's built hundreds of homes and thinks that he can build anything that you can draw, that's fine and well. 
but does he truly understand the building science principles behind sealing panels or high performance envelopes? And if he's been working as a framer or a carpenter, has this person really been involved in the air sealing and the perm ratings of underlayments and the other aspects of high performance homes? And therefore, does he have a, a problem with a complete education in that regard? So that's where my training that I often give to carpenters, even old school carpenters, to bring them up to speed with modern high performance building techniques. And that can typically be done in, in a very short period of time. I've done a number of programs, both uh, through the SIP school, which I started in 2006, uh, as well as with SIPA, the Structural Slave Panel Association, where we set up a training program as well. And I, as a uh, installer, trainer, and speaker, still travel all over the country and even outside the uh, borders of the U.S. to train people on how to work with panels, how to efficiently put them up. And once a crew is properly trained and understands the tricks of the trade, the techniques and the ways to save time, an installation crew could typically, uh, with a properly cut package that is delivered to the site, they could typically put up a lot of square footage in a day and enclose the envelope in many cases much quicker than a conventionally framed structure. Um, some people will ask me, well, how many square feet of panel could one put up in a day? And I would say, well, if I was to throw out an average on an average house with an average crew, I would say that you would typically break down from start to finish about a thousand square feet of panel per day. Now that doesn't mean that you're going to put up a thousand square feet on day one and on, you know, day five, you might put up 5,000 square feet on days two, three, and four, and day one is prep and day five is, is wrap up and, and sealing and finishing off all of the little accessories. And therefore you actually put up 5,000 square feet in the span of three days. But the reality is, is if you average it out, it was about a thousand square feet per day. So that's not too far off. Um, if you were to ask me what my record was, I would say, well, my record on the bad end is I put up zero square feet in a day. And my record for the most square feet I put up in a day is somewhere in the neighborhood of about 18 to 20,000 square feet. And you're thinking to yourself, well, how in the world can you put up that many square feet? And that's the answer is, well, it was easy. It was a commercial job. It was a flat roof. And we were putting up eight by 24 foot panels over a very, very large building. And as fast as we could rig and fly in an eight by 24 foot panel, we were dropping in 192 square feet, and moving to the next one. So the amount that you're going to get done depends on not just the skill level of the of the crew, but also the complexity of the project. You know, if you've got big flat areas that you can rig and set large panels, you're going to put a lot of panel area up very, very quickly. Whereas if you've got a project that is just cut up in all kinds of, of complex angles and geometry, well, it's going to go up slower. But um, it's interesting, though, that in some cases, the more complex jobs are the ones that SIPs actually have a bigger benefit because when complexity comes into play, a SIP manufacturer can utilize uh, 3D design and CAD CAM technology to take very complex geometry, break it down into simple planes with the help of computer-aided design. And once that is all fabricated, now all of a sudden you've got what on paper looks like a very complex project 
and the computer doesn't care how complex it is. It's going to draw it all out and break it into 2D planes. And after fabrication, when you fit it all back together, guess what? You've got a completed project that looked really complex. But for a factory to take on that job, it's not a problem. And now, just so my, our listeners that are not too familiar with SIPs, what you're talking about, a thousand square foot of panel, how much does that represent of a house? Like, to make it simpler, I think it's a really good question, Gabriel. Square foot of house, how many square foot of panels does it have? Right, because let's say the average you know, house that we're talking about, or let's say we're talking about a house that's 2,000 square feet. Well, 2,000 square feet of living space does not equate to 2,000 square feet of panel area. Because over that 2,000 square feet of living space, you might have 2,300 square feet of roof panel alone. And then the walls might equate to another, you know, 16 to 1,800 square feet. So now all of a sudden, we're up in the, you know, 4,000 square feet of panel area that needs to be installed, which will only yield 2,000 square feet of living space. So... Living space is often, you know, thought of as how big is the house that I live in, right? And people might say, well, I live in a 2,000 square foot house or a 1,200 square foot house or a really, you know, 10,000 square foot mansion. I don't know. It, it can break down that way. But that doesn't necessarily translate to an equal amount of square footage of panel area. So it's good. It's a good differentiation. there. Thank you. Okay. Now, going back a little bit to the training for our listeners, maybe we can talk about people that are just... Uh, getting started with SIP, there is an online program that they can look into that you you are the instructor of called the SIPA Best Program, where they right. go through like the eight episodes of the most common best practices. And once done with that program, can you can we talk a little bit of, of if sure, program sure. that program was a program I put together uh, maybe eight nine years ago. It's ten sections. And I broke it down into 10 even parts to help explain um, how to encompass all aspects of, of SIPs and SIP installation. It's not just about installation. It's also about design and engineering and ordering and comparing different types of packages and things like that. So it's a, it's a I would like to think, a pretty robust um, uh, A to Z type of a training program for somebody looking to get into the SIP industry. Uh, whether that person be a builder or a installer or a designer or anybody in between. Um, that program is online at the Structural Insulated Panel Association's website. And that is me standing in front of a camera for far too many hours talking about all of these things and others. And so it's a good place for, or it's a good resource for training that you can get for free. But Gabriel, just like you and many others in the industry, you yourself have hosted, and I applaud you for doing so, many training programs where folks who are in your area can come down to your uh, location, uh, see the factory, see how panels are manufactured, how they're fabricated, how you, you know, what your quality control program is, things of that nature. And those opportunities are um, done in many different uh, locations around the country. Uh, you offer a, a very nice one that I I'm happily tell people to attend um, because I know they're going to learn something about how to use panels and how to put them up properly and see a, a plant that is set up and operating under a quality control program and using a uh, code approved 
uh, report, an evaluation report that allows them to comfortably know that they're using a panel that will be accepted uh, under the confines of the building code. Yes, that's right. Uh, we do have our program one time every three months here in our facility when people can come down and do their hands-on training. We actually build a size 600 square foot ADU with them. And also just to put it into perspective, first time we build this uh, product with our um, students, it takes them anywhere from five to six hours and they might not finish that 600 square foot unit in that day. But once you go to a trained crew, they can do that exact same build in an hour. So it, to your point, it does take that learning curve. It is not a huge learning curve. It really only takes maybe a week or of training to be well equipped to do so as long as you have the proper previous uh, understanding right. of construction and you understand plumb and square. So right. it, it's a, a very short training program. And like you tell me a lot of times, it's very easy to do, but it's also very easy to do wrong. So we really want to take the time with the builders and get, go, get down to the specifics of the trade. So they're comfortable and we are comfortable using them and referencing to to other clients so they can take on those builds. Right. And, you know, you, you brought up an interesting point, Gabriel, because I know you've been doing these trainings. I didn't realize you were doing them every three months, and that's fantastic. I'm glad to hear that. Um, one of the big aspects of that question, how long does it take to install panels, is really a function of how the manufacturer provides the panel package. You could provide panels in a way that it was nothing more than a stack of blank panels. It would be a little bit like going to the Home Depot and pulling off, you know, 27 sheets of four by eight OSB and then drive it away with those uncut four by eight sheets of OSB. Well, that's, you know, you've got your sheathing, but it's not been cut to size or shape and it's not certainly ready to install. There's more work that has to be done to it. There are, folks in the SIP industry that would be happy to sell you a pile of blank panels. And then it's up to you to, in the field, fabricate those panels so that they're ready to be put up. The next step or evolution of SIPs might be that the panels are fabricated and therefore you can take them off the truck and you don't have to cut the panels into shape or size, but you might still have to take the lumber and insert the lumber into the panels. Uh, or around the windows or in the corners. Um, and therefore the panel might be fabricated, but it's not truly ready to install or ready to assemble. The industry has adopted both of those terminologies, RTA, RTI, ready to install or ready to assemble. And that really means that you've done as much as you can possibly do in the factory to uh, make it as easy and as quick as possible to install in the field. And different manufacturers give different levels, varying degrees of completedness, uh, such that that install can go quicker or not as quick. Um, the generally accepted term ready to install or ready to assemble means that the panels have been designed, fully fabricated, and all of that lumber has now been cut and pre-installed in the panels. That's what's generally accepted across the industry. So, um, again, you can find lesser amounts of uh, value added to your panel package, and that just means that you're going to spend more time during the install because you've got more work to do in the field. 
projects that I've seen you provide in the past have been truly to a ready-to-assemble uh, point where all of that lumber was pre-installed and as fast as you could grab panel A1 and A2, you're ready to put them together. And that's that's the best possible scenario for a quick installation. And that's really what we're trying to bring to our clients, the most complete package that has most of the assembly already done from the factory. So they can really streamline the installation once they get it on the site. So we really try to focus in every time group and giving them a more complete, ready to assemble package. Okay. And for some people, some of our listeners that are just getting started in their projects, is there some, some areas or some considerations they should take into account when designing the building with SIPs or with sticks, or if they have already started designing with sticks, how hard is it to trans transform it and translate it into a SIP building? Um, well, I would say over the last three decades, the SIP industry has certainly got pretty good at looking at stick frame drawings and saying, well, here's another one to convert over to panel layout drawings. Because <clears throat> although architects and designers, you know, throughout the industry are very uh, comfortable with designing with sticks, traditional stick frame construction, they may not be as familiar by doing it with SIPs. So the designers that one work for you or other designers throughout the SIP industry all have the ability to make that conversion and can do it quite comfortably. So the builder or the homeowner shouldn't be concerned that one, their, their drawings are, have been drawn in traditional stick framing that can be converted over to SIPs without any problem whatsoever. If one was to say, well, I'm going to start from, from, ground zero and design my house using SIPs. That's great. And I applaud you. Um, and the SIP designers that work for you at Preflex have the ability to then say, all right, we can look at your basic design and develop or generate that set of design drawings based on your wants and desires of a building this big or this high or rooms this size or whatever it might be. Now, there's always ways that you can tweak a design to make it more, I'll say, SIP-friendly. And when I say SIP-friendly, what I'm really saying is more cost-effective and installation-friendly, which means it'll go up quicker. Um, oftentimes, over the last you know, many decades, I've had a set of drawings come to my desk where somebody wanted to build a SIP house, and I will routinely have to go back and say, well, if we move this wall a little bit, or if we lower the pitch, or change where this beam is going to go, it makes the structure more SIP friendly. So SIP friendly means that it will go up quicker and probably cost you less in the long run because it takes advantage of the size of the panel, the strength of the panel, the yield of panel fabrication, and all of these things that make it um, more attractive uh, when it comes to paying for the SIP package and installing it. Agreed. And also, especially in the roof, right? We can get some good considerations to use the SIP panel as your roof structure and you don't have to add additional trusses or an attic space. I think one of the biggest considerations when designing a SIP structure is, is knowing how the, the roof structure works. So you're not uh, over-engineering the product or getting uh, more material that you really need. So Maybe we can talk a little bit of what to consider when building a SIP roof. Sure, sure. The um, 
uh, panels really do um, shine when it comes to using them as a roof assembly. Uh, because the panel is structural by nature, it's name, it's right there in the name. You can, you can see it at the first first name. That panel has the ability to span from point to point, and that point could be ridge to eave, or it could be gable to gable, or it could be purlin to purlin, or it could be interior load bearing wall to interior load bearing wall. Uh, the panel doesn't really care which way it orients. In other words, the longitudinal direction of the panel could be up the slope, or it could be or, you know perpendicular to the slope, meaning it was parallel with the ridge. It just needs to be able to carry those gravity loads down through the structure and into the foundation properly based on the good design of the building. And that panel, when it's applied or installed in whatever orientation it works, it provides both structure as well as insulation and gives the building that open vaulted or cathedral look that so many people enjoy. And one of the reasons that SIPs are used in a lot of structures, because the insulation is no longer at that flat ceiling. It's now up on the slope and opens up the volumetric space that is the building. It's one of the advantages of using SIPs uh, uh, to give that more, that roominess that a house or a structure or a, a room might have by putting all that insulation up at the roof line and not at the ceiling line. Well, that definitely makes sense. You are insulating your whole house and you're not leaving that attic space that can uh, heat up and really also be transferring that heated space into your box yeah. of your AC systems or into your ceiling of your main house. But yeah, the- and I'm sure we'll get that into one of these future episodes uh, in the distance. But yeah, that's a bit, that's a big issue is, you know, Think of the craziness of building a house, putting your insulation at the flat ceiling, and then, you know, three or four feet above that, you've got your your roof deck with shingles on it, and you put that in a climate where when the sun comes out, your attic temperatures climb to, oh, I don't know what, 110, 120, 30 degrees. You know, you go into some areas in the southern half of the U.S., you couldn't find an HVAC contractor crazy enough to crawl into an attic space that's that hot in the middle of a sunny day. And yet that's where we put our HVAC systems and ask them to perform efficiently when all around this ductwork is air temperatures of 110 plus degrees. It's it's ludicrous. So why not put the insulation, which is the exterior envelope of the structure, and let all of that HVAC system be inside the conditioned space. It's a far better design to to do that, and one that the Department of Energy and all of the other systems, our points-based systems, uh, Passive House, uh, Energy Star, the list goes on and on of people that recognize the value of keeping the insulated envelope on the outside and all of the conditioned space, including your HVAC system, in that conditioned area. So yeah, we'll get into that depth in much in much greater depth in the future, I'm sure. Also, you mentioned something very interesting about transferring the gravity loads of the roof into uh, your foundation. So my question is, does the panel itself have the ability to transfer the whole roof load or the ridge into the foundation without any additional structural members? Or or is there some other way that we can incorporate some structure into the panels and how do we achieve this? So it's a good point, but I'm going to answer it two ways. The panel, because it's structural, can span 
two load-bearing walls or beams, and those have to transfer the loads down to the foundation. One thing that I see happen occasionally, and it kind of boggles the mind because I'm not sure why we're doing it, and that is to put up conventional trusses, which, oh, by the way, are a structural system, and then they put structural insulated panels on top of the trusses, which is having two layers of structural systems in the same building, which doesn't necessarily make sense. Now, I could understand instead of putting trusses at two foot on center to say, let's put a gang truss at six foot centers or eight foot centers, something that couldn't possibly work if you were just putting, you know, 5-8 sheathing, roof sheathing over top, because it needs those trusses at two foot centers. But a SIP doesn't require those trusses at two foot on centers. And in fact, can very comfortably span that six, eight feet without any problem whatsoever. So therefore, let the SIP do that work that it wants to do or can do and only put the load-bearing members that are required such that the span can be met by the, the structural capacity of the SIP. That's what you really want to you want to shoot for. Now, if the panel can't carry the load, I mean, if you're building in Southern California where you are, Gabriel, it's not a problem, right? We can span great distances because there's no snow load. The, the total loads on the roof are quite low, but you don't have to go too far into the snow country where all of a sudden we're having to carry 100, maybe 150 up to 200 pounds per square foot. Those tr immense loads now require that the roof be much more robust, and that could include the panel being stronger. We can go all the way up to 12 and a, a quarter inches thick with your panels, as you well know, and carry a fair amount of load. But if we have to even carry more, then we can incorporate dimensional lumber at the joints of the panels. And now we have an even stronger panel than we did just by the panel uh, spanning that distance by itself. So there are ways to improve, increase, or make the panel even stronger by embedding lumber inside of that panel to get to higher or even greater snow loads. And, and that is part of our ready-to-assemble packages, right? Once the drawing gets engineered, the engineer will spec out where we need to add these additional structural members. And wherever we can, we will pre-install them from the factory. So they will already come inside your panel in your in your ready-to-assemble kit. Make sure that lumber is pre-installed, ready to go, so that when the roofer unloads that truck, he's ready to start rigging panels and, and flying them up onto the roof and, and getting them installed quickly. That's, that's the best bang for the buck. And wherever we don't have a structural uh, lumber spline, we use our traditional block splines, which is the same panel, just an uh, inch thinner, with the same uh, dimensions as your standard 4 by material, and it works like a tongue and groove, seamlessly joining all the panels together. And we really like to use this spline because it gives us that continuous insulation, right? Right. That's right, how exactly. And that system has been used, you know, for quite some time. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's not unique to, to Preflex, but it's certainly nice to know that you guys have adopted that system because the block spline very effectively allows you to spline or join the panels together at the in-plane joints. But after that has been completed, what you have by the nature of the connection is continuous uh, foam insulation. And that uninterrupted foam means that the thermal performance, the thermal performance of your panel will act even greater. You don't have any 
what are known as thermal bridges because of lumber embedded into the panel. So it's a great joint. It's one that's very commonly used and one that performs at a very high level. Yes, Alan, that is the reason why sieve structures have a higher performance than regular stick framing, even though there are values very similar, because we're removing all those terminal breaks. And now we have a continuous envelope that really can perform at a much higher level than your standard stick frame. So what would a regular homeowner or builder expect to save on energy cost when living in a sieve house versus a regular stick frame home? Uh, it's a great question. It's one that gets asked, I mean, continuously and, 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 and all the time. And when I say continuously, the, the answer is you've got continuous insulation. Um, it should come as no surprise to a, an experienced builder that when they stick frame a house, somewhere between about 22 and 26% of the exterior walls are uninsulated because they're, they're not batten insulation. The insulation is between the studs. So those sections of the wall are, can be called uninsulated. This is why the model energy code allows for and or has dictated continuous insulation be used on the outside of a stick frame wall so that you can get better energy performance. Well, SIFs don't need to do that. We've already got continuous insulation because we've got insulation that's uninterrupted for a very, you know, um, uh, greater portion of that wall assembly the framing factor, which is called the uninsulated amount of the wall assembly when using SIPs is down around three or 4%. It's a very, very small amount. So we are perceived to be continuous insulation with the SIP envelope, and therefore we get much higher numbers when it comes to thermal performance. A homeowner should expect substantially less energy to be used to heat and cool their house because of the high performance nature of a SIP envelope. If one were to specify a full SIP envelope for walls and roof, you would say, well, how much am I going to save a year? What's, well, I don't know, how much, you know, where are you building, you know, what are you comparing it to? There's, again, a lot of unknowns in that question. But what I would suggest is we would typically see the high level of thermal performance create a reduction in heating and cooling costs of upwards of about 50%. Now, you can't say that means your electric bill is going to be decreased by 50% because that's your electric bill is more than just heating and cooling. Your electric bill also has to heat hot water, right? Well, the hot water is the second largest consumer of electricity. Plug loads, your lights, and keeping your computer on is a very, very, very small amount of those electrical loads. HVAC, heating and cooling, is always the largest amount of your electrical consumption or I'll say your energy consumption for any any single house. So if you can take that chunk of energy usage and cut it in half, your overall savings for utility costs can drop anywhere from 20 to 30, maybe as much as 40% will drop when using a full envelope of SIPs. Al, you mentioned a lot about the different building codes and energy codes. Are SIPs widely accepted uh, nationwide by building codes, or is there some restrictions in using it in certain geographical areas? No, when it comes to um, acceptance by the code, it, it, panels are accepted by the code. They're written into the code. They're actually in the uh, 2007 supplement of the ICC, that International Residential Code. So panels are already in the code. An official can't just arbitrarily walk up and say, yeah, I've never seen these before. I'm not going to let you build with them in my county. 
they don't have the authority to do that. One, if it's been reviewed and stamped by an engineer, the engineer is taking on the liability that it is structurally sound and can be used. And the fact that you have an evaluation report at Preflex shows that you have met the intent of the code and you are providing a code approved product. So there is no, no reason for anybody not to be able to build with SIPs anywhere in the country. Yeah, and talking about our evaluation service report, that is where our listeners can find our load capacities and they can see our load considerations for when they're designing a building, they can go and look uh, at that code and our load design charts where they will be able to um, see what are the spans in specific locations and load requirements. So in terms of how strong our SIPs can be, you can always reference these load design charts in uh, our ICC report to, to verify that, that you are up to code. And when working with us, we really take care of doing the engineering through our service providers that have a very lengthy experience of working with SIPs to make sure that is signed up and approved by your local jurisdiction. All right, everyone, it has been our first episode of Building Better. I'm Gabriel, and this is Al. Thank you so much for joining us. We really do appreciate having you here, Al, and we expect to see you some more in the future episodes. Thanks so much, Gabriel. I appreciate you having me, and it's always fun to talk about SIPs. It's, uh, it's what I do, so I'll look forward to being back sometime in the near future. Please go follow us on Instagram at Preflex Buildings, where you can ask questions, interact with us, and see what we're up to every day here at Preflex. Thank you for joining us, and we'll be back next month with a whole new episode of Building Better.